Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. It's early December 2023 and I'm in utter chaos. I imagine a fair few of you can identify with me in this. It's the time between seasons, the end of autumn and the beginning of proper winter And some of us may be in the midst of having a sort out ahead of putting up Christmas decorations or inviting friends and relatives round. Although this time of year is ideal for hibernating, retreating and resting our bodies, too often we find ourselves even busier than ever. Caught between finishing some things and starting others, rushing from engagement to engagement, saying yes to too many things when we'd really quite like to say no. Today I've been cleaning and sorting, putting away various delightful pumpkin-shaped decorations and taking down this week's round of shows and workshops ready for the next round. Martin and I have been dashing from pillar to post and it shows. We keep saying that everywhere we look, there's a mess. We've got glittering stage snow all over the floors, washing waiting to be put away and books which need returning to their shelves. So today I vow to tackle it. Restoring order can be incredibly calming, allowing us to relax without the visual noise of things out of place. And the act of having a good old tidy can be very relaxing, allowing the brain to go into neutral. I often feel a renewed sense of clarity after having a sort out. My story for today has a healthy dose of chaos too, perhaps even more than the sparkly mess I'm currently sitting in. So wherever you find yourself today, I invite you to press pause on all the things you need to do, slow down and enjoy a journey into the funny and fascinating world of English folklore. Put aside the chaos for a moment, pour yourself a warm drink, then gather close around the fire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens podcast. There were 
tree Down and down, hey down and down They were as black as they might be With a down One of them said to his mate Where shall we our breakfast take With a down, dairy, 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 down, down Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the Three Ravens podcast. I'm Eleanor Conlon and I'm standing on top of an ancient chalk ridge and rolling oranges down the hill below, trying not to knock the top hat off my co-host Martin Vaughan. God, my hat! What were you doing with those oranges, Eleanor? Heads! <laughs> now we're gearing up for a winter at the fireside here at the Three Ravens Nest. And even as you listen to this episode, we're off on an adventure to choose our Christmas tree for this year. As eclectic folklorists, we like to celebrate Yule and Christmas. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's so wonderful to have the smell of the pine needles wafting through the house. You're very excited, aren't you, Martin? Oh, boy, am I. I really love decorating for Christmas. And I'm hoping this might be the year when Eleanor finally lets me get a cushion with a jolly Victorian Santa on it. Hmm. <laughs> well, it might seem a little bit early to be decorating, but there's frost outside, there was a bit of snow in the night, mm-hmm. and I always think that when the days get dark, a bit of magic never fails to cheer things up. Agreed. How about you, dear listener? Do you decorate early or do you prefer to wait? Do you have your own traditions for December? We'd love to hear about them, so do get in touch and tell us. We also have some new Patreon subscribers to celebrate since the end of haunting season. Thank you so much to Claire, Vivian, Lisa, David, Ruth, Mark, Reese, and Claire. (laughs) All hail Claire, King of Patreon. All hail Vivian, King of Patreon. All hail Lisa, King of Patreon. All hail David, King of Patreon. All hail Ruth, King of Patreon. All hail Mark. King of Patreon. All hail Reese, King of Patreon. All hail Claire, King of Patreon. Whew, that was a bumper crop of fresh new monarchs of Patreon. Anyway, thank you so much to all of you and to everyone who continues to support us on Patreon. Your subscriptions really do mean a lot to us, not least because it means we can buy books about weird and outlandish folk customs to add to our already groaning shelves and afford to go on trips and invest in the podcast's future. If you'd like to join our conspiracy of ravens on Patreon, please go to patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast where you can subscribe for $3 a month or $6 a month and receive lots of extras, including all of our episodes ad free, monthly exclusive episodes, episodes of the Three Ravens Film Club, our monthly newsletter and more. Now we'll talk a little bit more about this in the correspondence section at the end of the podcast, but we've also launched our lovely new Facebook group. So please join it and start sharing your folky thoughts, recommendations, interesting websites and gronking away with everyone else in the Raven's Nest as quick as you like. We've also had some lovely new reviews which we'll share at the end of the episode but as always please do flap on over to iTunes, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a thumbs up, drop some stars and write us a review because it really does help others to find the podcast. Also welcome to any new listeners who have discovered us off the back of our recent crossover episode with the Folklore Podcast. You're all very welcome around the campfire there's plenty of room and if you have 
haven't listened to that episode, do check it out. We had a lovely chat about folklore with Mark, who hosts the Folklore Podcast, all about the importance of folk culture and traditions, oral storytelling. And we told an all new take on a classic folktale, The Two Sisters. It's a brilliant story. This version written by Eleanor and performed by us both. And we really hope you enjoy it. Oh, and thank you, Mark, for having us on. Now, before we get stuck in, it wouldn't be a new series without a brand new competition. Oh, yeah. Now, we've done card contests for the last two series. So we thought we'd try something different this time with the first ever Three Ravens Flash Fiction Competition. Oh. Now, we've so enjoyed the listener stories which have been sent in, uh, some of which we've still got for our next listener episode. Yes, and please keep them coming. <laughs> so we would love to read your stories. Mm. Send us your original work or retellings of favourite folk tales up to a thousand words and we will put them together in a special episode or possibly a couple of episodes yeah. which will go live on our feed. That's it. So we are looking for kind of crafted stories. So other people out there, and we know a lot of you are writers, mm-hmm. and some of you are people who like to write but maybe have not been doing very much of it lately. So... This is an opportunity across series three. Take some time, craft a thousand words of folky goodness, send it through to us at three ravens podcast at gmail.com. We'll pick our favorites and read them as special episodes come the end of season three. Now, we know that a thousand words is really not very long at all for a story. And I guess that's part of the challenge. Yeah, it definitely is. I'm not saying we wouldn't love to read your 90,000 word folkloric novel because we definitely would. (laughs) (laughs) But it might just break our podcast feed if we tried it. Yes, indeed. So please keep them brief. A thousand words. And uh, yeah, we are so excited about what you're going to send through to us. Now, we're releasing this episode on Monday, the 4th of December. And if you're not hearing the jingle of festive bells yet, we hope you soon will be. Now, have we got anything particular to celebrate today, Eleanor? Anything we really ought to be spending the day doing, for example? Well, much like our lovely Patreons, we have a whole holy host of saints days to celebrate today. (laughs) We'll be revering St. Barbara, St. Osmond and St. Clement. Although it's worth saying that it's only old St. Clement's day. Oh, I see, yeah. He's now actually switched to the 23rd of November, presumably to avoid party clashes with Barbara and Osmond. Yeah, I mean, three at once. I can't say I've heard very much about any of them except St. Clement's, only because his name is obviously that famous church in London part of the song. Yes, possibly we should celebrate his day by eating lots of oranges and lemons. Mm. I think St. Osmond is sort of an honorary saint as he didn't die in a horrible and gruesome fashion and didn't perform any miracles and his canonisation took 230 years. So it wasn't exactly an ecclesiastical priority. Seems like St. Osmond might be a bit of a cheat. Yes, well, he did build a cathedral at Old Sarum, which is the site of ancient Salisbury. Okay. And he founded the Cathedral Canon, which is the hierarchy of canons, priests and various assistants around a bishop that we know today. Okay. But the most interesting thing about Osmond is that he's actually the person who formalised revisions of Anglo-Saxon and Roman rituals and drew them into Christian practice. Oh, so it's all his fault. (laughs) Yes. Osmond adapted, assimilated and put into practice his new services. Although they were originally intended just for use in his diocese of Old Sarum, they were used throughout England within a hundred years. Oh, that's so interesting. So he's the guy who integrated a lot of those yeah, old so customs. The, the old Celtic customs and also kind of the early Christian customs, he sort of united it and drew it all together. So we have 
an awful lot actually to recognise this guy for. And I have to say, I'd never really heard of him before. St. Osmond. Yeah, very interesting character. I'm hoping when we get round to our Wiltshire episode, obviously that's where old Serum is, so he sure. might crop up again yeah. there in a bit more detail. Well, poor St. Barbara, while much hotter on the miracles than Osmond, <laughs> had a really terrible time. Oh, no. She was a Christian living in Nicomedia, which uh, was an ancient Greek city in what's now modern-day Turkey. Barbara had the usual clashes with her overbearing father about the person she should marry, etc. But the crisis really came to a head when her father had a bathhouse built for her and she secretly ordered three windows to be put into it instead of two in honour of the Holy Trinity. I've said it before, arguments about how to do it with the bathroom can really destroy a family. Well, it certainly destroyed this one. <laughs> Barbara's dad was very upset and had her arrested, which you might think is a bit of an overreaction. Um, she was brought before the prefect of Nicomedia and she publicly acknowledged she was a Christian and that was the part that dad really took umbrage. Oh, it's all <laughs> it? kicking off. Yeah. The prefect had her put in prison and horribly tortured. Oh. Uh, there's a, a very graphic altar painting of this, um, which traumatised me this morning okay. when I looked at it. Um, and that's when the miracles started. So every night the dark prison would be filled with inexplicable light. And each morning when the torturers returned, they found that Barbara's wounds that they'd inflicted had miraculously healed. Amazing. This continued until the prefect kind of realised he wasn't getting anywhere and sentenced her to death by beheading. And the person to carry out the beheading was none other than her dear old dad. Oh, what? I know, awful. But it didn't do him much good because he was struck by lightning on the way home and went up in flames. Well, that's awesome. Or possibly, I should say, down in flames. <laughs> the doubt St. Barbara wanted to share a heavenly bathroom with him after that. <laughs> wow, that is quite the story. She's like the saint version of Wolverine. Yeah. With healing factor. Pretty amazing, isn't it? <laughs> OK, so how do we celebrate St. Barbara? Well, she's the patron saint of military military engineers, artillerymen, miners, and basically anyone who works with explosives. No way. Because, because of her... the association with lightning. <laughs> because her dad exploded. She basically exploded her dad. <laughs> Interestingly, it was a tradition in various navies across the world to keep a small statue or an icon of St. Barbara near the powder magazine on a ship and uh, sometimes in a fortress as well to prevent the powder from accidentally exploding. This is amazing. And apparently in the tunnel industry. It's still a tradition to establish a small shrine to St. Barbara at the tunnel portal to protect people working on the tunnelling project. What a lovely set of traditions. Isn't okay, St. Barbara, I'm a big fan. <laughs> St. Osmond, I'm going to have to do some reading about because I've got mixed feelings. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. As for celebrating Barbara, I couldn't find anything specific, but I'm guessing fireworks might be in order. Can I just blow something <laughs> up in the sake of St. Barbara? Yeah, so get some sparks flying. <laughs> We've had a great collection of saints today, but I do also want to talk about St. Clement, who is quite an interesting one in terms of traditional celebrations. I'm going to out on a bit of a limb here, but I, was he a pope? He was. He mm. was Pope Clement I, and he was pope in the first century AD, so very early pope. Besides being pope, Clement achieved a miracle and a gory death, so he's absolutely bona fide. Okay. As as sainthood goes, Great. in my opinion. He was banished from Rome by Emperor Trajan and set to work in a stone quarry. He and his fellow prisoners were soon suffering in the heat of the day because of a lack of water while quarrying. So Clement prayed and when he finished praying, he saw a lamb standing on a hill. 
He went over to the lamp and struck the ground where it stood with his pickaxe, releasing a clear stream of water to quench everybody's thirst. Well done. Perhaps unsurprisingly, a lot of people converted to Christianity after that. <laughs> and the authorities weren't too happy with Clement, so they tied him to an anchor and threw him in the Black Sea. Yeah, I wrote a little bit about this in the Three Ravens newsletter for November, because that is where, in the it modern does, calendar, yes, we celebrate St. Clement's, Clement's Day. Day. What a sad story of his life, in a way, because he was really important to the early church, wasn't he? Yeah. Now, you might wonder what an early Pope and martyr has to do with English folk customs, but he was adopted as the patron saint of metal workers and particularly blacksmiths, which idea comes from the legend that he was the first person to refine iron into ore and shoe a horse. Mm. Now I've read about our friend Saint Osmond, I think it's highly possible that he may have conflated him with Wayland the Smith to bring oh, him into so the Christian tradition. How cunning! Either way, there is traditionally a big celebration for him, both in rural and urban areas. On what was known as Old Clem's Night, the smith would ritually fire the anvil by packing gunpowder inside it, striking it with a hammer to produce a small explosion. Amazing. Presumably delighting St. Barbara also. A lot of blowing ups. Yeah. Then the smith dressed up in a costume to represent Old Clem and led a procession of smiths through the streets on essentially a pub crawl. Usually ends this way. <laughs> yeah, good. that's an English tradition yep. that kind of is for every month and every day and every week. <laughs> Local children got involved to and went about asking for food and drink and money with begging songs like this one. Clemony, Clemony, Clemony mine, a roasted apple and some good red wine. Ooh, nice. Which um, <laughs> is kind of linked to the similar custom on St. Catherine's Day, which was referred to as catening. Our old friend Henry VIII, of course, did not appreciate clementing or catening and had both banned within the London churches of Clement, Catherine and Nicholas. But it still went on outside the church building. Now, can we see any clementing about today or do we have to re-establish clementing in our village? Well, just up the road in Burrush, where Rudyard Kipling lived, there is an effigy of old Clem mounted above the door of one of the pubs each year. Oh, we better get along to it and see if we can spot it. But for now, shall we tell the county criers to take off those silly costumes and stop haranguing people for oranges and lemons and then perhaps even lay some gunpowder to blow us into Bedfordshire? <laughs> Let's! Bedfordshire is located in the east of England. It's bordered by Northamptonshire to the north, Hertfordshire to the south, Cambridgeshire to the east and Buckinghamshire to the west. As ever, you can see its precise location on the map on our blog on the website. The county's name comes from Bedensfordshire, which means the county of Bedensford. So essentially a river crossing. Okay. And the county's motto is Constant Bee which is actually taken from the hymn To Be a Pilgrim by and, John Bunyan. OK, and, and has it been constant in terms of county boundaries? You know, something we often find is that historic counties aren't exactly where they've always been. Well, it has remained fairly constant. Okay. And it's still a ceremonial county today, unlike many of those we've already talked about on the podcast. However, Kensworth and a bit of Caddington were absorbed into Bedfordshire in 1897. Right. They used to be a part of Hertfordshire, so Hertfordshire lost out there. Mm -hmm. To the south, Bedfordshire is right on the Chilton Hills. Okay. A beautiful chalk ridge of hills, well known for its beauty. 
And the rest of the county is part of the Great Oozes Drainage Basin. It doesn't sound terribly romantic. (laughs) No, now I say it, the Great Oozes Drainage Basin. But uh, there are lots of rivers which are either tributaries of the Great Ooze or the Thames. So I'm guessing that means that there have been settlements all along these rivers since... Not quite early on, you know, there's plenty of water. People, yeah, people are there's evidence um, of, I mean, there's early 5th century burial sites which have been discovered Whoa. and those are all nearby Roman towns. The Romans had a foot firmly in Bedfordshire and some historians have concluded that there were Saxon federati there. Now, just to be clear, what are Saxon federati? Well, basically, a fedus was a treaty with Rome, agreeing that Rome would provide benefits in exchange for military assistance. Mm-hmm. In this case, the assistance was likely to be to protect the Romano-British settlers. So the, they wouldn't be Roman citizens because they were Saxons, but they would still receive benefits, maybe money or land rights, and they would have their settlements just without the Romans' towns and yeah. burial sites. Too. I mean, there's quite a tradition of this sort of thing. The Dane law, in a way, is a yeah. version of this, from much later, of course. Exactly. But nonetheless, it's the idea of sort of paying the local populace to not kill you. Yeah, <laughs> that thing. <laughs> During the Heptarchy, Bedfordshire was part of Mercia, of course, uh, yep. which occupies more or less the whole middle chunk of England at that time. Pernd up, pernd up. Absolutely. But it was then rather in the line of fire for the invasion of the Viking group. Great Army in 865 and was, as you've just mentioned, well and truly occupied by the Danes. (laughs) The Vikings stayed quite comfortably in Bedfordshire until they were subdued by Edward the Elder in 915. Uh, He was the elder son of Alfred the Great, who I think we have mentioned before. Okay. uh, And so when was it that Bedfordshire, as we know it, actually came into being? So the first actual mention of the county is recorded in 1016. Okay. Um, But Edward the Elder had uh, been active before then. He built two burrs at Bedford inside of the River Ouse, and then hundreds were formed around the burrs. But the first actual mention of it is 1016, when uh, King Canute, to quote, laid waste to the whole shire. Oh, no. I mean, it must be kind of satisfying to be able to say that you've laid waste to something I know, in right? its entirety. Yeah, I think we should start, uh, start doing that, you know, well, putting I mean, it on our CVs. Certainly, I, I am known to lay waste to an entire cooked breakfast, for example. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> take, take those wins where you can. To the county? An entire <laughs> county? Well, the people of Bedfordshire obviously didn't think it was that satisfying to be laid waste to, no, no. as by the time William the Conqueror came over with a troop of handsome Vork's ancestors, <laughs> there was no organised resistance to him at all oh, in really? Bedfordshire. Yeah, the Doomsday Survey shows that English landholders were seamlessly replaced by the Normans almost overnight. Wow, OK. So I'm imagining Bedfordshire was a bit fed up with being ravaged after that. I think so. Although there were obviously some simmering resentments against the monarchy, which lasted right through until the Civil War. Charles I had levied a brutal amount of ship money on Bedfordshire in 1638. Previously, ship money had been reserved only for coastal towns, Mm. but Charles wanted more, so he started levying inland towns and counties as well. What a jerk. And so Bedfordshire was extremely vocal in opposing the king during the Civil War. There was no visible support for Charles 
at all Bedfordshire, which is pretty interesting uh, and meant that there were no major battles there in oh, the Civil War. Okay, yeah. I, I mean, we know the Civil War mainly for pitched battles, but yet yeah, none at all in Bedfordshire. Although there was a regiment which mustered in Leighton Buzzard, but soon galloped off elsewhere. Sure. Enthusiasm for fighting the king was pretty high, though, after the ship money thing. Yeah. And Bedfordshire managed to muster 500 trained militia and a further 500 untrained volunteers. Now, if you're not familiar with the whole ship money debacle, this is basically Charles I struggling to raise taxation, so he starts to levy increasingly unfair taxes during this period of long parliaments where he's not letting people choose their laws and he's not calling parliament. It's part of why Charles I was so phenomenally unpopular. I mean, there's a long mm. lot of reasons why Charles I was <laughs> phenomenally unpopular. Yes. But I'm glad to know that the people of Bed really didn't, didn't like, like Charlie no. the Ones. Uh, ship, ship money was, was one of the ways he sort of pretended he needed money for new ships for the yes. Navy uh, to get money from people mm-hmm. um, and it did not go down very well. It's not. almost as if people get cross when the powers that be start taking their hard-earned wages out of their pockets. <coughs> 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 slightly more pleasant notes. We can say with confidence that Bedfordshire was historically a prosperous county because of the favourable agricultural conditions, sheep farming flourished and so it was a big producer of wool. I imagine all of those floodplains you had had kind of mineral rich. Super fertile land. But it was also one of the centres of the lace making industry from the 16th century and also the straw plaiting industry. Call back to our corn dollies episode. Well exactly Exactly. After our exploration of corn dollies in the last series, I had to look up to see if there was a special Bedfordshire style of straw plaiting. Mm. And there is. Awesome. There is the Dunstable Plat, which comes with its own rhyme to teach you how to do it. Over one, under two, pull it tight, and that will do. Wicked. Love it. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? (laughs) Well, straw work originated in the villages, and we know it was often made by the wives and children of farm labourers. The industry really expanded within Bedfordshire, and by the 19th century, the town of Luton was famous for its millinery industry, which thrived on the use of decorative straw work. So, Eleanor, if we were going to take a real tour of historic Bedfordshire and not just an armchair adventure... (laughs) What sites might we see across the county? Well, we would be absolutely spoiled for churches and the remains of churches and indeed abbeys. There's a remnant of an Augustinian priory at Dunstable, which is now part of the parish church. Elstow Abbey near Bedford was actually founded by William the Conqueror's niece, Judith. Okay. We've got Chicksands Priory, which is a pretty interesting place because it was a priory of the Gilbertines. Have you heard of them? I have, and I have seen pictures of Chicksands Priory. I might have been there, but I mean, I I can't confess to knowing very much about the Gilbertines in particular. Ah, well, the Gilbertines were unusual in that they allowed canons and nuns to live together in their religious houses. You know, that's how Sounds like a recipe for trouble. Yeah, well, perhaps unsurprisingly, there were only 10 in England. <laughs> and uh, Chicksands was high on the list for dissolution in the 16th century. Debauchery! Yep, it was given then to the Osborne family and was home to Dorothy Osborne, author of the 79 Osborne Letters. Yes, yes. Now, for those who haven't heard of her, Dorothy Osborne was a 17th century lady who wrote these wonderful letters to the man who later became her husband, Sir William Temple. Her 
her letters are beautiful. They're kind of erudite and progressive and provide a great source for understanding society in that period. Sadly, Temple's replies haven't survived, but <laughs> all of Dorothy's letters are in the British Library and well worth reading. You can find some of them online. Wouldn't it be awful if she wrote these incredible letters and his replies were just, Dear Dorothy, thanks for the letter. The weather continues fine. Love, yeah, William. Absolutely. I, I think we all have people with whom we have WhatsApp relationships a bit it, like that. Just like you that, You know, yeah. you take time to craft something nice and you just get a cheers. <laughs> or an emoji. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, many former abbeys in Bedfordshire, like Chicksands, which were dissolved, were given to families in much the same way. Woburn Abbey is now a very impressive stately home, although it formerly housed a Cistercian order. Okay. It became seat to the Dukes of Bedford, and I believe there is still a Duke of Bedford in residence there today. Really? If you go and visit, you might spot him. Um, if you prefer something a bit more outdoorsy, though, you might like a visit to the Whipsnade Tree Cathedral. Sorry? Whipsnade Tree Cathedral? That sounds pretty intriguing. What's that? It's a really beautiful idea, actually. In the village of Whipsnade in the 1930s, a man called Edmund Blythe planted a garden in the shape of a cathedral, basically. There are chapels for each of the four seasons, and the walls of the nave, chancel, transepts and cloisters are planted from different species of trees. What? This is blowing my mind. What an amazing idea. It's so amazing. And what's really lovely is Blythe was a soldier and he planted the cathedral in memory of friends who were killed in World War One as an act of faith, hope and reconciliation. My goodness. And they do sometimes hold actual religious services in the Tree Cathedral, although the site's now owned by the National Trust. Well, that's absolutely amazing. We must go. We must visit. Doesn't it sound lovely? Oh, it sounds so good. And when we make our trip to the Tree Cathedral, which I now know is a thing and I'm taking a moment to kind of inwardly digest. If we ever get a bigger garden. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) But what about castles, Eleanor? Are there going to be castles we can visit in Bedfordshire as well? Well, sadly, not a great deal remains of Bedford Castle. Okay. Only part of the Mott is left because houses have actually been built over quite a lot of it. Yeah, it's a fairly common story. Yeah, we know it was built in 1100 after the First Barons' War and archaeologists have established that it was built in a Mott and Bailey design and probably would have been quite impressive, but there's not much to see now. Shame. Summary's Castle near Luton is much more fun It is a ruin, but there's much more of it still standing. And it was likely one of the first brick buildings in England. Oh, that's pretty cool. It was built from 1430 by Sir John Wenlock. And apparently his ghost still haunts it today, simply because he's so happy when yeah. he built the first brick castle in England. Well, okay. We've got to visit that one. It's got a ghost and it's a ruined castle, so tick, tick. a really beautiful sort of bread brick ruin. Yeah, that's really interesting. Unfortunately, while there are many, many sites of former castles in Bedfordshire, they're just that. Mm. Every time I discovered one, I got excited and then I read, such and such castle was a castle in... (laughs) So, Summary's Castle is certainly the best we've got. But we could visit the very lovely ruins of Houghton House in Houghton Conquest. Although ruined as well, you can still see it's an incredible example of 17th century architecture and was apparently the model for House Beautiful in Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. (sighs) 
Pilgrim's Progress. And if you're wondering why Bunyan keeps cropping up, he was a Bedfordshire man and was even part of the Parliamentary Army during the Civil War. Yeah, I mean, perhaps we haven't been talking about literature as much as maybe we did when we started Three Ravens in recent episodes of the podcast, but John Bunyan is such an important person in the history of English literature. If you haven't read The Pilgrim's Progress, it kind of set a template for an awful lot of quest literature that came afterwards. Um, You know, Jane Eyre, which I hope everybody loves, was previously or in an early draft subtitled A Young Girl's Progress because it's about this moral Mm. quest that, that Jane goes on. It's underpinned by Christianity, but Bunyan was in prison during the Civil War. He was a kind of political protester. And to write his work, he pulled all of these ideas and lines out of the Bible, cobbling them together into a kind of collage or a new text, which he said could not be censored by virtue of the fact that it was just the Bible. So he just took bits out of the Bible and rebuilt a new text out of that. I did not know that about the Pilgrim's Progress. That makes it even more interesting. What's amazing is it really hangs together as a story. Oh, as yeah. Well, if you've it? never read it, it won't take you very long. And, and yeah, OK, it doesn't have a lot of adjectives. It doesn't go into depth describing things. But some really important ideas that have cropped up in so many texts ever since are kind of founded in The Pilgrim's Progress. I had a vividly illustrated copy as a child. Did and you? I, I can really recall the images from it. The Slough of Despond was mm. very scary. Oh, yeah, And of some of it was, yeah, very, very very evocative. And, you know, Vanity Fair, you know, very famous ideas and names of things that people are really familiar with, that they come from The Pilgrim's Progress. So you've, if you've never checked it out and fancy a little bit of oldie-worldie literature, it's a really good one to just familiarise yourself with. Yes. Now, while it's a shame that most of the castles are former castles, mm-hmm. was a castle rather than is a castle, <laughs> Bedfordshire more than makes up for that with its folk tales. Excellent. Come on then, Eleanor, take me on a journey. What have we got? Well, I'm going to start off by returning to Chicksands Priory, which you thought you might yeah. have been to. So perhaps some of this might sound a little bit familiar. Mm. Now, there's not much to see there these days because the site was bought by the government in 1936 and turned into an Air Force camp, RAF Chicksands. Yes. But it is still said to be haunted by the ghost of a nun named Rosata who was walled up alive. Whoa. There is one remaining cloister of the priory on the site and there's a plaque there which reads Moribus Ornata Jasset Hicbona Berta Rosata which means by virtues guarded and by manners graced here alas is fair Rosata placed. Now, Rosetta could be a name for Rose de Beauchamp of Bedford who founded the priory originally. However, there's a much more romantic story attached, which I think we'll go with instead. Yes, please. Being a Gilbertine priory where both nuns and canons lived, there was bound to be an accident at Chicksands eventually, and that's exactly the basis of this tale. So a canon and a nun called Rosata fell in love, and soon it became apparent that the pitter-patter of tiny monk's feet might be heard. (laughs) They were discovered and the canon was beheaded while Rosata was walled up to the neck and forced to watch him die. Then the wall was sealed up, leaving her to die inside. See, I often think that the walled-up nun story must be fabrication, but... 
it keeps on cropping up all over the country. So it has to have a basis in truth, doesn't it? Yeah, immurement as a punishment definitely happened. But whether it happened quite so often as haunted priories around the country would have us believe, I'm not sure. Mm. Either way, there have certainly been sightings of a ghostly lady around Chicksands, though whether it's Rosata, nobody knows. Oh, but come on. Did they really think that monks and nuns living together was going to work out without things like that happening? It might explain the lack of Gilbertine priories in general. <laughs> Rosata is not the only ghost of Bedfordshire, of course. There is an absolute plethora of ghostly goings on. Oh, go on, tell me more. Well, there's a story connected with that most well-travelled spectre, Dick Turpin. Oh, he just keeps happening, doesn't he? The bonus of being an equestrian spectre, I guess, <laughs> really can get anywhere. <laughs> but this one is actually about Turpin discovering some other ghosts. Really? Yeah. So he wanted to use a house on Weathercock Lane in Apsley Geese as a hideout. So he broke in one night. Yeah. But he was haunted by the ghosts of a young man and a young woman who led him to a secret cupboard where he discovered their murdered bodies. Well, that's just dessert, isn't it, for breaking in? Well, it is. <laughs> Dick Turpin woke up the old man who lived in the house oh, and no. questioned him and then discovered that this old man had murdered his daughter and her secret lover and stuffed them in a cupboard. Why anyone would stuff a corpse into a cupboard? Like I, the smell of rust. I don't know. Presumably oh. this Poor old man uh, couldn't smell much. Yeah. But, so Dick Turpin then blackmailed this man into letting him use the house as a hideout <laughs> in exchange for keeping the murders quiet. And the two of them then buried the bodies under the cellar. But the ghosts were still seen around the house and oh, garden. That's brilliant. But also speaks to what a rotter Dick Turpin was. Well, absolutely. Although <laughs> Dick himself doesn't haunt that house, the ghost of his black horse can apparently sometimes be seen around there too. What, because the horse died there? Or? Maybe. Possibly mm. not out by the smell, I don't know. <laughs> but the really great thing about this particular ghost story is that a subsequent owner of the house, who was a private landlord and wanted to rent it out, appealed against his rates assessment because the house was haunted and nobody wanted to rent oh, it. Oh, no way! So, but the appeals committee dismissed his arguments as without point or substance. Ah, see, I don't think the committee should have been able to say that unless they'd been forced to stay in the house overnight and see how they got along with the spooks. What a brilliant idea for a TV programme that would be. <laughs> An entire appeals committee. I, I picture tucked up in one big bed being yeah. spooked. <laughs> and then they take the rates down. Fantastic. <laughs> Now, Turpin isn't the only highwayman with a Bedfordshire legend. In Bedford itself, at the junction of Tavistock Street, Union Street and Clapham Road, is the site of the execution and burial of the notorious highwayman Black Tom. Well, and you say he's notorious. I confess, I have never heard of him. Well, he's supposedly notorious. OK, <laughs> all right. You know, highwaymen, terrorising Bedford, robbing yeah. coaches, robbing people on the road. But, I mean, they're sort of ten a penny, aren't they, highwaymen? It seems like <laughs> one of the main jobs when, when you were kind of leaving school in the late job journey. <laughs> yeah, it was one of your options. Yeah, what do you do? Well, Black Tom was obviously a, a bit more feared than most because he was buried with a stake through his heart to Ooh. prevent his return. Okay. But it obviously wasn't a very good stake as his ghost has been seen many times around the area, sometimes even in broad daylight. Fantastic. Apparently, people who've seen Black Tom have mistaken him for a staggering drunk in Georgian fancy dress. Brilliant. Until the point where he vanishes into thin air. <sighs> See, that does make you wonder how many of the staggering drunks in fancy dress you see on Halloween are actually just 
unquiet spirits who are out for the night. I'd say a solid 60%. Can't <laughs> be that many trick-or-treaters. <laughs> I've got to say, Bedfordshire seems like a great place for ghost hunting so far. Lots of ooks and spooks. Well, we've got one more for today, I think. In the grounds of the former Battlesden House, which has been demolished now, as, as the story with so, so many things in Bedfordshire. They like to knock things down they in Bedfordshire. Sure do. But you may be haunted there by the ghost of a dishonest steward who used to cheat the family he worked for. Uh-oh. You won't see anything, but you might hear him walking up and down, rattling milk pails and saying, milk and water sold I ever, weight and measure I gave never, and I shan't rest never. Ever. See, that's a fun feature of certain ghost stories, isn't it? The idea of the unforgiven ghost who's committed crimes during their life and then they have to go about telling everyone forever, confessing to their crimes. I think I've read about several ghosts who confess to selling watered-down milk, as an example. of all possible (laughs) crimes. (laughs) Now, Martin, you've just been reprising your role as Pender of Mercia a couple of weeks ago. Indeed. With War Axe. Mm Mm-hmm. But I'm feeling a possible sequel to that play coming on because I've been reading about Pender's daughter. Amazing. Her name was Cineberg and there is a holy well called Kimberwell at Chalgrave which is dedicated to her. She was the abbess of Castor, later canonised, she's a saint, um, and she may have been born at Chalgrave. Pender got her married off to Oswiu of Northumbria, but their marriage ended, I think, amicably when they both decided they wanted to enter religious houses. Really? He, he went and founded a priory. She went and founded an How abbey. Fascinating. Yeah, it's quite. And apparently, you know, parted friends, marriage ended, went to be religious. <laughs> and the town of uh, Castor is named after her when she returned to Mercia. And the name Castor comes from. Cineberg Sester, which is quite the contraction. Yeah. And locally, she's also known as, I think this is really cute, Lady Coneyborough or Lady Kettleborough. How cute. <laughs> Isn't it good? We know about her from the Venerable Bede, although she has largely been forgotten now. Well, you can still see the Holy Well. Eleanor, I think you definitely need to revive her in a play. I mean, Pender of Mercia is such <laughs> an interesting character. And whenever we do that play, people don't really know very much about no, him. No, they're always intrigued, aren't they? I think it's so interesting how his daughter became very Christian. Yes, because uh, he was not. Absolutely not, no. <laughs> well, speaking of revivification, the next weird and wonderful bit of folklore reminded me of the story sent in by Sophie, which mm. we included on our most recent listener episode last week, Yes, about the twice-buried woman. Oh, such a good story. This is another example of a lady restored to life, which comes from St Mary's Church in Bledsoe, which is just outside Bedford. Mm-hmm. After a long illness, a local wealthy lady died and was buried in a vault under the church. At her funeral, the sexton of the church noticed a beautiful gold ring on her finger, which had apparently been her favourite, and so she wanted to be buried wearing it. So soon after the funeral, the sexton broke into the vault and tried to steal the ring, but he couldn't get it off her finger. She'd been wearing it for so long, it was, mm-hmm. it was difficult. So he took out a knife, so he cut off the whole finger classic grave robber style but as he raised it the corpse sat bolt upright 
uh, scaring the sexton yeah, so naturally. much that he ran away from the vault and also the village where he was never seen again. And the lady uh, went home, ring in place, and lived to a ripe old age. See, that is so interesting. Firstly, serves the sexton right, but also there is an almost identical version of this story that comes from Somerset. So you wonder how often how that often has come up before. Women were being accidentally buried. <laughs> well, it's worrying, really, isn't it? Well, I like to imagine that she was actually dead, yeah. but was so indignant of being robbed that she came back to life to tell the sexton off. I think that's a bit uh, nicer than the thought that they just pronounced her dead without properly checking. Yeah. Well, it was very difficult to tell, apparently. I mean, really? I, well, yeah, people didn't really understand, it seems, what it meant to be dead. No. Uh, so so they, a lot of people seem to get buried early or wrongly. Horrible idea. Yeah, it is one of those it? nightmare scenarios. It, it makes you wonder if uh, it's sort of an unhappy marriage scenario. Yeah. And, uh, husband calls up the doctor and says oh yeah wife's dead and says to the doctor no she's definitely dead yeah slips him a five and, and goes, goes please please Maureen has been driving me crazy <laughs> let's just bury her <laughs> <laughs> Horrid. Devilish. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of devils, yes. the devil himself has turned his attention to Bedfordshire in the past. Naturally. Of course, in yep. the corner of England. There's a tale of him quite fancying the Tower of the Church at Marston Mortain. Well, romantically speaking. Well, for some reason, he wanted it. Okay. Anyway, All right, um, fair enough. This is a very lovely church in the decorated perpendicular style. Ooh, gorgeous. So maybe he just wanted, you know, to ornament his home. Yeah, stick and some gargoyles on the side. This massive detached bell tower. Apparently this was once attached, but because the devil liked it so much, he tried to nick it. <laughs> but it being a bell tower proved too heavy for him, so he had to put it down and leave it a little way away from the church. Oh, devil, you're such a dipstick. I, I love it. <laughs> well, he hadn't finished with Marston. Oh, what, so he came back? No, well, he went to the pub, uh, presumably to commiserate after his failure with the church tower. Oh. And at the pub, he met three young men who were jumping. Right. <laughs> Of course, naturally. Why wouldn't you on a Sunday? Well, well, well because it's God's day, I guess. You should, shouldn't be jumping on a Sunday. It was Sunday and jolly jumping is frowned upon on a Sunday. <laughs> but the devil wasn't very impressed at their efforts and offered to teach them how to leap. Uh-huh. Made three amazing leaps, which uh, were so good that they're marked by three stones today. The devil's jumps. You can see Fantastic. them tear the jumps in. Oh, I love it. The young men realised on seeing these impressive leaps that it must be the devil. But when they tried to escape, he seized them and they vanished in blue flames. Whoa. Well, I am very amused by the idea of jolly jumping on a Sunday, meaning the devil (laughs) might appear to you to drag you off in blue flames. We'd better be careful to keep our Sunday jumping to a minimum. (laughs) But I love jumping on Sundays. Well, do it on Mondays instead. (laughs) Now, not very far away from Marston Mortain is the village of Westerning, which is the of quite a comical 12th century legend concerning a miracle. Okay, you've set this up to be good. Tell me more. A man called Falk had refused to pay his rent to the local farmer, Aylwood. (sighs) Aylwood was understandably a bit angry and broke into Falk's house where he took hold of a grindstone and a pair of gloves for payment. Two wrongs don't make a right, though. No, that's what Falk thought. He came back and beat up Aylwood and then dragged him before the local beadle and accused him of stealing many more things. Right. Um, Poor Aylwood then had a terrible time. He was sent to the ducking pond where he would be found guilty if he floated and innocent if he sank Mm. in that old tried and tested and definitely completely effective method of trial. (laughs) 
unfortunately for Aylward, he floated. <gasps> so they decided he was guilty. Uh-oh. So they gouged out his eyes, uh-huh. castrated him, <sighs> and left him at the side of the road. Oh, no! Aylward didn't die, though. Instead, he prayed to St. Thomas Beckett for days. Uh-huh. And... After days had passed, his eyes and testicles grew bad. (laughs) Although his eyes were different colours and his testicles were a bit smaller than they'd been before. (laughs) Understandably, he devoted the rest of his life to St Thomas. (laughs) I mean, that's not something that they really widely publicised about Thomas Beckett, was he? A patron saint of lost testicles. No, it doesn't sound quite as good. Although... Objectively, it is pretty impressive oh, as yeah. miracles go. Absolutely, yeah. You've got to have cojones, haven't you? Yeah, my goodness. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, I haven't talked much about hill forts. Ooh, <laughs> no. From the ridiculous to the sublime. Yeah, let's talk about some hill forts. Many of the, well, you know, <laughs> mounds in the earth. Yeah, OK, all right. It kind of follows on. Yeah, OK. Not a total non-secretary. Yeah, that's a neat segue. <laughs> now, many of the former castle sites in Bedfordshire are built on Iron Age hill forts. Mm-hmm. And there is a good story about the establishment of the hill fort known as Maiden Bower, in that the Queen at the time made a bet with the King that if she could camp a large army... Within a bull's hide, she could Ooh. build a fort so, there. What, like a, a bull's skin? Yeah, so a skin. if she could camp an army within the skin of a bull, she could build a fort. Oh. The king obviously didn't think she could do it. Yeah, I think we've but, got a clever queen on our hands here. Yeah, she cut the bull's hide into incredibly thin mm. strings, laid them all out to make the greatest possible circle, and that's where she built her fort. And her army were housed happily within well, it. Well, that is fantastic. Well done, Queen. And I bet that king felt like a right ninny muggins afterwards. Mm-hmm. Simple lateral thinking, king. <laughs> yes. Suck it. Now, I'll finish up by talking about the Five Knolls Barrow Cemetery, an ancient burial place dating from the late Bronze Age. It's near Dunstable, and it's actually a group of seven barrows, including two bowl barrows, three bell barrows, and two pond barrows. Goodness, that sounds hugely grand. It is. And over 90 skeletons have been discovered there, and you can see finds from the excavation in the Luton Museum. I mean, that speaks to how wealthy this area must Mm -hmm. have been. For barrow construction, really. I mean, it was an incredibly labour-intensive effort. Yeah, and there's seven different barrows here. Looking at photographs, it is a stunningly beautiful but quite eerie bit of landscape mm. with these differently shaped barrows. And there's a variety of legends attached to the place, including a uh, knocking coming from within Classic. one of yeah, the barrows. Great. But I won't say too much more about the five barrows now, as they feature in my story too. Speaking of which, is it story time? Yes, it's story time. We have had a lovely tour around folkloric Bedfordshire. But now I want to talk about the legend of a witch who was determined to cause trouble even after her death. And I'll start spinning my yarn right after this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. For most of us, chaos is a negative thing, an absence of law and order. But there are some who consider chaos to be a gift, a state from which creative thought can grow. One such person was a witch named Sally, who lived a great many years ago in the town of Dunstable. Sally thrived on mess and disorder, and her ramshackle cottage was always in a complete state of disarray. There were piles of books and papers which threatened to cascade over and crush unsuspecting visitors. There were half-eaten cakes mouldering on platters and mouldy cheeses providing a feast for the mice. There were sticky rinds in the basins and bathtubs and the windows were so filthy that Sally could barely see out. She was a great collector of all sorts of things, from birds' feathers to fancy hats, copper pots to patty pans, and she liked nothing more than to have everything she had ever collected all around her, all at once. She also had a habit of picking up new hobbies all the time and not continuing with them, so a trail of evidence of her interests was scattered all around her. There was knitting in the bedrooms and painting up the stairs, and a full half of Sally's kitchen was devoted to a setup she'd devised for brewing her own beer. I've mentioned that Sally was a witch, and she was actually quite a good one, although the mess in her house meant it was sometimes difficult for her to lay her hands on exactly the right ingredients for a love potion or a good luck charm. It was quite common for anybody who needed her services to have to wait for a good long while, trying not to drink the sweet tea offered to them in a dirty cup, while Sally rummaged around in cupboards which spilled their contents onto the floor, her frizzy grey hair flying everywhere, and eventually located the thing she was looking for in an unlikely place, like the coal scuttle or under the lid of the harpsichord. Nobody knew how Sally had got her hands on a harpsichord, but whenever she played it, her long, ragged nails scraping against the yellowing keys, they soon knew that it was extremely out of tune. Despite her eccentricities, Sally did manage to help the people of Dunstable with their little problems, so they kept coming to visit her. There was nobody like Sally for brewing teas to get rid of unwanted boils, babies or birthmarks, or turning thorns or scraps of ribbon into amulets. She was good for a gossip too, and most people left her house feeling satisfied with their visit, if slightly in need of a full body wash. Sally did have one enemy in Dunstable, though. The local vicar, Mr Pascoe, disliked everything about the scatterbrained witch. He was a man who favoured order and cleanliness, and he was often to be seen polishing the church doorknobs or straightening the chalice for Holy Communion. Sally and her lifestyle, not to mention her magical proclivities, went against everything Mr Pascoe believed in. If Sally was quite a good witch, then Mr Pascoe was quite a good vicar. 
He took his job seriously and never lost an opportunity to spread the word of God to those he felt most needed it. And so he forced himself to make monthly pilgrimages to see Sally, even though he hated being in her scruffy, cluttered house. Now look, Sally, Mr Pascoe said as he hovered nervously in the kitchen, not wanting to sit down on anything in case it stuck to his cassock. You really have got to come to church, you know. You've lived here for sixty years and more, and as far as anybody knows, you've never been. The Queen doesn't like that sort of thing, and I have to report to the diocesan authorities. Won't you come this Sunday? No, thank you, Vicar, said Sally, who was pottering about, absentmindedly stirring some evil-smelling liquid in a large pot, which she had vaguely claimed was rat poison. I'm far too busy. The vicar made his usual protests about being busy on Sunday being a sin in the eyes of the Lord, but Sally wasn't really listening to him. He valiantly persisted, but Sally started loudly singing a rather rude ballad. It was difficult for the vicar not to hear some of the words, although he wasn't sure he actually understood all of them. "'Look, Sally!' he said at last, becoming very cross when Sally opened a cupboard and a small flock of blackbirds flew out and disturbed his carefully placed hat. You should address yourself to your immortal soul and to this horrendous mess of a house. It's a shameful thing. Cleanliness is next to godliness, you know. Sally stopped singing and her hand stilled as she stirred the pot. Are you calling my house messy, vicar? she said softly in a tone which would have caused most people to take a step back. "'Well, it is,' said Mr Pascoe staunchly, in spite of the way Sally raised her copper ladle. Several drops of rat poison dripped from it on the floor and hissed where they fell. "'How dare you!' said Sally, who didn't consider her house to be disordered at all. "'Get out and don't come back!' And she shook the ladle at him so ferociously that the vicar turned and fled, telling himself he'd done his duty for another month. Although Sally liked the way she lived, the vicar's words had upset her deeply. She thought about them all day, and the more she thought, the angrier she became. Hadn't she been doing her best to help the people of Dunstable, giving them exactly what they wanted and needed and never asking for any payment? She was doing a damn sight better than that pompous ass of a vicar. What did he ever do except mutter prayers and obsessively tidy things up. It was unnatural, sweeping and scrubbing as much as he did, Sally thought. Somebody ought to teach him a lesson. The more she thought about this idea, the more she became convinced that the person to teach the vicar a lesson was surely her. Now, Sally had never been particularly malicious, but a person can be pushed too far. However, she knew that her skill with herbs and charms probably wasn't going to be enough to seriously inconvenience the vicar. She was going to need more power. And so at the next full moon, Sally put on one of her fancy hats and walked down to the Five Knolls, where it said the ancient kings sleep. She made her way to the three bell-shaped barrows in the middle, and she ran around them nine times widdishins. Then, rather out of puff because she was pushing 75 years old, she squatted down and traced a magic circle in the soil. 
No sooner had Sally closed the circle, but out shot the devil himself in a pillar of bright blue frame, whooping and cheering to be let loose out of hell. Good evening, devil, said Sally politely, doffing her fancy hat. They had met before, of course, but it had been some time ago when she'd been a much younger woman. She hoped that the devil would still recognise her, especially with her clothes on. Hello, Sally, said the devil. To a being as ancient as he, Sally still looked exactly the same as the pretty young woman with a bird's nest of frizzy hair who'd summoned him all those years ago. What brings you to summon me this fine moonlit night? Well, devil, I haven't asked much of you for all these years, Sally said, but there's a small matter of a troublesome priest. There usually is, sooner or later, the devil said, nodding wisely. In short, I need a bit of extra help, said Sally. Not a problem, said the devil, who could be very helpful when he wanted to be. He felt a degree of fondness for Sally, as she often left him gifts of mummified cats and bottles of brandy, and in truth, he had a very similar attitude to mess and chaos, and they were well suited. I'll give you the power to make anybody who crosses you regret it. Wonderful, said Sally. I knew that I could count on you. And she shook hands with the devil, thinking of all the ways she was going to make Mr. Pascoe pay for insulting her. Blue flames shot from their clasped hands, and it flew so high that the few folk of Dunstable who were still awake at that hour mistook it for a shooting star. Sally adjusted her fancy hat and started to make for home, but the devil followed behind her. "'What are you doing?' said Sally. "'Have you business in Dunstable, devil?' "'I'm coming with you, of course,' said the devil. "'I told you I would help, so here I am.' "'Hold your horses,' said Sally. "'You can't come with me looking like that. "'The priest already doesn't like me. "'He'll cause no end of a to-do if he sees you.' The devil looked down at his hairy goat legs and concluded she was probably correct. Besides, Sally said, the spare bed's got knitting on it, so there's nowhere for you to sleep. That's not a problem, said the devil. I can curl up in the fireplace with the coals. I don't think so, said Sally. The postman always likes to sit by the fire when he comes, and I think he would be distressed to see you in there. Can't you do something about all this? She waved her hand, generally indicating the devil's entire appearance. Oh, all right, said the devil, and in a shower of glittering blue sparks, he shrank himself down, yowling horribly all the while, until he was in the shape of a fat, shaggy, tortoiseshell cat with glowing green eyes. Perfect, said Sally, scooping up the cat and carrying it home with her. From that day on, Sally and the devil disguised as a cat were completely inseparable. Sally fed the cat bowls of milk with drops of fresh blood stirred into them and the cat slept on her chest at night and whispered things into her heart. People who came to visit Sally began to notice a difference about her. Where before she'd been good-natured if a little scatty, she started to be irritable and say spiteful things. And her temper, oh, it was fierce. If she suspected the slightest insult, she would lash out at the person responsible for it. 
and strange things started to happen too whenever anybody crossed her. The blacksmith had asked for a love charm, but he didn't pay Sally quickly enough, and instead of becoming irresistible to the object of his desire, his face sprouted ugly oozing pustules which Sally refused to help him remove. The miller's wife had asked for an elixir to help her have children, but she gossiped about Sally behind her back and called her a smelly old woman. News of it got back to Sally, and soon the miller's wife found herself giving birth to four goats instead of human children. Word started to spread through Dunstable that Sally was a force to be feared, and when Mr Pascoe heard about it, he decided that enough was enough. Listen, Sally, he said. I've been very patient with you for all these years, but you're causing real trouble now. If you don't stop at once, I'll have no choice but to call in the Witchfinder. You just try it, Sally said, and the ends of her hair seemed to crackle with rage. She pointed a finger at Mr Pascoe, and behind her the tortoiseshell cat reared up on its hind legs and hissed and spat, and for just a moment... Mr. Pascoe could see the devil there, as plain as the nose on his face. But Mr. Pascoe was determined, and despite his fussy ways, he had courage enough. He summoned the witchfinder, who made his way up Sally's treacherous garden path and arrested her. There was a trial, but it didn't take long, because it turned out that there was quite a lot of evidence against Sally, what with the goats and the pustules and all the other inconveniences. Funnily enough, the tortoiseshell cat was nowhere to be seen. It had vanished into thin air the day Sally was arrested. I can only assume that the devil had concluded that Sally's soul would be with him in his homeland soon and had gone back to make things good and warm for her. Things were warm enough for her in Dunstable, for those were the days when witches were burned at the stake. The whole town turned out to see Sally, who was still spitting feathers with rage even as they lit the pile of wood below her. Mr Pascoe turned pale as she started to smoke, for she screamed a loud curse, vowing her revenge on the people of Dunstable and most especially the vicar. He was very relieved when Sally had been reduced to a pile of ash and went home thinking himself lucky that his troubles with her were finished. Unfortunately... His relief didn't last for long. Strange things started happening in the vicar's house and in the church. During Holy Communion, the chalice was suddenly lifted from Mr Pascoe's hands and the wine tipped all over his head. The chafer dish was tossed from one end of the church to the other, scattering communion wafers like falling snow. Hymn books were carried up to the rafters and dropped down in handfuls of pages and foul smells wafted through the pews, making the congregation gag and cover their mouths. After one particularly bad Sunday morning, Mr Pascoe was standing in the mess of his church and he knew that it must be Sally's spirit exacting her revenge. Ever a proactive person, Mr Pascoe immediately wrote to the witchfinder who wrote to his friend, the exorcist. The exorcist came down to Dunstable at once with his bag of equipment, and Mr Pascoe watched as he solemnly conducted his ceremonies of candle, book and bell. Sally's spirit put up a good fight, but eventually the exorcist was able to annoy her into manifesting in the back corner of the church near the font. 
Mr Pascoe had a brief sighting of the furious ghost, eyes blazing, smoke pouring from its ears, before the exorcist harnessed it and stuffed it into a bottle, which he hastily sealed with four layers of thick black candle wax. There you are, said the exorcist, handing Mr Pascoe the bottled spirit, along with an extremely large bill. Mr Pascoe didn't quite know what to do with Sally's spirit, but everybody advised him to bury the bottle deep in the grounds of the church to prevent Sally from ever rising again to cause trouble. So that's exactly what he did. And he said any number of prayers over the site of its burial. He felt a little bit guilty too, so he did say some prayers for Sally's immortal soul as well. Although Sally's spirit never directly troubled Mr Pascoe again, that still wasn't quite the end of it. Slowly but surely, the churchyard started to show the effects of her influence. The fences fell down and the gravestones cracked. Poison ivy wound itself around the trees and crept over the ground. The grass grew long, concealing holes which liked nothing more than to twist people's ankles. The bones of the deceased began to poke up above the surface of the earth. In short, the churchyard was soon just as much of a mess as the home of Sally the Dunstable Witch. But Mr Pascoe refused to dig up the spirit's bottle for fear that Sally would get out again and terrorise him. And so the churchyard remains in a terrible state, getting worse with each passing year. Perhaps one day a future vicar may tidy it up and perhaps they may find a small dirty bottle sealed with four layers of thick black wax. And perhaps then, Sally's spirit will roam free, causing chaos wherever she goes. So, Martin, what do you make of the tale of Sally the Dunstable Witch? Well, she's an unrepentant stinker. And therefore, there's something I quite like about her. <laughs> I, I think, you know, the story featured a lot of things that I like. The devil was in there. Um, I was doing my best to imitate your devil voice. <laughs> I don't think I quite pulled it off, but... <laughs> but the kind of snooty town elder very much enjoyed Mr. Pascoe. I mean, what is it with people coming in and telling you how to live your life? I mean... I uh, mean, really? Uh, well, uh, Sally didn't like it. <laughs> no, indeed. Although... Should she have tidied her house up maybe a little bit? You know what? It was her house. She can do what she likes within exactly. her own house, can't she? Totally. Although things did not go well for her. And I think in a way she kind of brought about her own demise. I think she did. She wasn't very cautious. No. And bringing the devil home with you is never going to end well, even no. if it is a, a nice snuggly fat cat. Oh, do you remember when we invited him out? He took months to leave. It was supposed to be a single night. And he just wouldn't go. Very awkward house guest. Created a lot of laundry. And the sulfurous smells. Don't forget the sulfurous smells. Yes, very unpleasant. Awful, (laughs) awful. Now, I did want to include the idea of the barrows. Yes. um, Which I mentioned earlier on. And there are loads of different legends. One of them is that you can summon the devil and um, that there are ancient kings sleeping within them. Fantastic. I mean, I'm going to be talking more about barrows next week. So we're going to be barrowing it up. Barrow heavy. Absolutely. (laughs) Let's just call us the Barrow Boys. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Now we've talked about it, though, I have to tell you all a secret. Go on. The tale of Sally the Witch is not actually an old folktale at all. Oh, really? No, it was an invention of the headmaster of the local school in Dunstable, 
in 1875. All right. Mr. Wire, for that、mm. was the name of the headmaster, was trying to shame the vicar into tidying up the churchyard,、no. which had reportedly got into a bit of a mess. <laughs> so he was, but he was so taken with his own idea that he wrote an 81 verse poem about <laughs> it, which was incredibly popular.、Um, so popular. That it forced him to resign as headmaster. Oh, really? Yeah. And there is a copy <laughs> of the poem and one of his notebooks in the Luton Museum.、Today. Oh, well, that's fantastic.、Yeah. And a kind of piece of folklore in and of itself. Yeah, it, absolutely. And really interesting. I just I like the idea that he got so fed up with this messy churchyard that he decided to invent this entire legend. Yeah, it's a bit Ocean's Eleven, isn't it? Like, yeah. Really I, I couldn't find a, a copy of the poem online to read.、Mm. So I haven't read it. And I'm not sure how it how it works out, and if it's, it was remotely similar to my story. If you have come across the poem and you've been to Luton Museum, please tell me. Yeah, yeah, we'd be very, very interested. Right, shall we move on to correspondence? Yes, we shall. Okay, so as mentioned earlier, since the end of series two, we have had some lovely, lovely reviews from listeners on iTunes and Apple Podcasts, including from Baking Mama of Three on Apple Podcasts, who wrote. Prepare to be carried away from your troubles. In the midst of the chaos and grind of our daily lives, surrounded by the relentless horrors of the world, let this enchanting podcast be your tiny oasis. Its charming and joyous hosts will whisk you away into a world of fairies. Ghosts, giants, witches, dun cows, and all manner of beasts and magic. It is truly a treat and a treasure. May you be as content to curl up by the fire with a cup of tea and binge this podcast all day. As I am. Oh, that is so nice, isn't it? Thank you, Baking Mama of Three. But we don't always need a long review. We had this one, for example, from Professor Kitty, who wrote. Such good fun. Love you lot loads. Five stars. Well, that's very nice. Thank you, <laughs> Professor Kitty. We did have a longer one from Primal fourteen twenty seven on iTunes, who wrote Three Ravens is my new favourite podcast for lovers of hidden history, the storytelling tradition, or both. I can't think of a better companion than Three Ravens. I caught on just in time for haunting season, and Martin and Eleanor's tales of the uncanny and the macabre have kept me sufficiently spooked for one of my favourite times of year. So far, I've only listened to a small scratch of the county by county, but the yarns have been masterfully spun, and I can't wait to dive back in. Thank you, Martin and Eleanor, for your art and your dedication. Well, thank you, Primal fourteen twenty seven, for your review and for listening. That's a lovely review. It、thank、is、you. so nice. And one last short one from Skywriter Magic on iTunes, who wrote ten out of ten storytelling. Thanks to Martin and Eleanor for haunting stories, well researched folklore, and lively banter. I never want to miss an episode. It's so nice. Now, thank you again to Baking Mama of Three. Professor Kitty, Primal fourteen twenty seven, and Skywriter Magic, and to the seventy eight people who have kindly reviewed us on Spotify.、Oof. There's no way for us to see your names there, but we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. As always, if you've got a moment to fly to iTunes or Apple Podcasts to leave us a review, please do. The more we have, the easier the podcast gods make it for other people to find us. <laughs> then the more we grow, and then the more we can do. Otherwise, huge thanks to our likers, commenters, and super sharers, including. Ruth, Katerina, Simon, Helen, and Charles on Facebook. Zizza Zaza, Tea Tales Travel, Anna Vigors Art, Fluffy Stapler, and our folk podcast friend Fairy Folk on Instagram. And lot number two four nine, Paco. Teasel, Catherine Langrish, and Woodwose Productions on Twitter or X. 
if you'd like to join in and see what we're up to on the socials, <laughs> then do come and gronk alongside us at facebook.com forward slash three ravens podcast, Instagram at three ravens podcast or an X at three ravens pod. And now, of course, we've got our new three ravens group where you can all post and share stories. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Rather than just the Facebook page, which is all us posting stuff, you can now post to each other, correspond, share the things you're interested in. What have you been reading, listening to? What's cool in your county? Share your local folklore. It's all happening on the Three Ravens group on Facebook, so please do sign up. Another little reminder about our flash fiction contest Ooh, yes. to send us up to a thousand words of an original tale or folktale retelling, and we will put them all together in a very special episode. Mm-hmm. So, Martin, where will we be wandering to next week? Well, we are back off down to England southwest, visiting the lovely county of Gloucestershire, where I will be telling the rather uncanny tale of the Torbarrow Guardian. Oh, I'm certainly looking forward to that. We will also be back on Thursday with a new Magic and Medicine episode, and I'll be talking all about druids. Oh, I'm hoping you're going to spill some druidic secrets, as, you know, not for the first time, I've been considering officially becoming a druid. But I imagine it's quite a long and difficult path, but we will find out quite how difficult later this week. Excellent. Until then, while our story's gone that way, we'll go this way. And remember, don't whistle until you're out of the woods. Thanks and credit go to Bedfordshire Folktales by Jen Foley, the Modern Antiquarian blog and the British Folklore website, all of which were very helpful in my research for this episode. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour, and our logo was designed by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks and such leemen With a down, derry, 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 down, down Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.